I don't know about you, but for me, um, for those of you know, I've been living for God for about 19 years now, and um, over the 19 years, I kind of established certain routines. I established certain routines how I live my life for Christ, established certain routine, and that routine kept me for a very long time. And with this endeavor, when the Lord told me that he wanted me to start a Bible study and eventually um, establish a church, I said, okay, and I felt pretty confident about it. Didn't feel like I was qualified, but I felt confident because when the Lord tells you something, you're confident about it. Doesn't mean you're qualified because only God can qualify you. And so I said, okay, feel good about it. But one of the things that I did not um, take um, did not pay a whole lot of attention to that, that, that I didn't realize would happen would, would be my routine would be interrupted a lot. And so I've been trying to figure out my new routine since I've been pastoring this church. I haven't gotten it down pat yet. And so I'm still working at it. I'm working at the routine that will, that will be consistent and that will help me to, to be comfortable to do what God needs me to do. So it's still a challenge and a work in progress for me. Um, but it made me think about just people in general with life that they're dealing with. And can I say this to you? Do not let life dictate how you live. But you dictate how you live in this life. Don't let life dictate how you live. And very easily we can slip into that. You wake up and your routine say, go and brush your teeth. Your routine says, take a shower. Your routine says, use the bathroom. Your routine says, get ready for, get dressed, school, work, whatever you're doing. And you keep going. Your routine is dictating your life. And so God is dealing with me on this, and we can't let our routines of life to dictate how we live. Because then God is not in charge of your life if that's what you're doing. You're in charge of your life. Your routine is in charge of your life. But God wants you to allow him to be the center of your life and be in charge of your life. So we got to examine, or we need to examine our routines to say, is it a routine where God is in charge or I'm in charge? Or you might not be in charge. Life may be in charge of you. You may just be being pulled along, you know, on a rope. And, you know, wherever life takes you, that's where you're going. And so I don't want us and God don't want us to be pulled by life. And where we're going, life is dictating what happens to us. That's not God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life is that his will for your life, he dictates your life. And I can't say this enough. Sometimes it doesn't sound good when we say let God dictate your life. Because sometimes we want to feel like nobody dictate what I do. I dictate what I do, but I want to tell you, it is so great for God to dictate, for God to guide and direct your life. It is a wonderful thing because always remember, your parents, when you were younger, guided your life and you turned out pretty decent, right? So if they knew how to guide your life and you turned out pretty decent, well, God is superior to your parents, so he can guide your life and you're going to turn out better than decent. 
So it's not a hard thing for us to just let God kind of guide and lead our life and we be receptive and be obedient to his direction because he knows what's best and he will make you happy in the interim. I got to even go down that road and tell you that we don't always know what makes us happy. And, and in this life that we're living in, as soon as we think that something will make us happy or someone will make us happy, uh, by the time that starts to happen in our life, after a while, what makes us happy or what used to make us happy don't make us happy anymore. So really, we don't even know what truly make us happy. I've made up in my mind a long time ago, the things of God will make me the happiest. And go back to that thing that I said Sunday. My eldest son said, Dad, what keeps you going the way you go and, 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 and just being consistent? And I told him the cause for which I am working towards is greater than any other cause, greater than anything else in and outside of this world. There's nothing greater to me than the cause to work and serve, and live, and have a relationship with the Almighty God. Nothing is worth compromising that. Nothing in this world. So that's what made me keep going, no matter how much disappointment, no matter how much I'm frustrated, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how things work in my life, I keep going because this is the greatest cause that I can ever take up. It is the greatest cause because it goes beyond this life. It goes beyond what we know. It goes into eternity. And so this is the greatest cause. So I've been examining my routine and I'm trying to make it work because some days I'm more tired than some. When I preach, I'm just overwhelmed some days when I'm done because for some of you that don't know, when you're preaching, you preach by the inspiration and the anointing of God, which means there's a supernatural power, God's power working in your life and through you to minister the word of God. So when the spirit of God is no longer your help as you minister, you you now realize that the, the, the normalcy of your flesh and blood is what you're now dealing with. And so you're, you're, you're exhausted after you're done uh, ministering the word of God. And so there's different things that happens. And so I'm ministering on Thursday nights here. Friday nights I go to Mercer County Community um, 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 Correction Center, Mercer County Correctional Center, and I ministered there. And then Saturday uh, um, I study. I'm studying. I'm constantly studying all the, all all throughout the week. And then Sunday, come back here. You're 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 taking care of family. Um, I don't have a normal job where I just go to work, put my head down, and work. I'm constantly pulling a lot of different direction to provide for people there as well. So it's a challenge trying to get it worked out. And I say, God, I need your help. And so that's when He put into my heart that if we're gonna make it, we must establish and cultivate an apostolic routine. That's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Establishing and cultivating an apostolic routine. And I'll give you all, I'll, I'll explain all of that to you in just a second. It won't take us long. I just have a little bit of scriptures that I'm going to share with you and then we'll go through it. But it is very important that we establish and cultivate 
and apostolic routine. I will tell you this. The routine that you establish in God, if it's an apostolic, godly routine, will last you through this walk. But if you don't get a good routine and establish it, it will cost you. You ever heard about King David in the Bible? Sure, some of you have, right? David, King David. Well, King David was a man, the Bible says, after God's own heart. And he did wonderful things. He did great things for God. I mean, he's he's still beloved in Israel. As a matter of fact, when you go to Israel or you go to an Israeli home, you'll always see the star, and they call it the Star of David, and, and, and people are always, David is an icon in Israel, an icon in the Bible. He was a man after God's own heart. But David one day ended up committing adultery, meaning that he had an, uh, an affair with a woman that was not his wife. And then when he realized that he did that, the woman was pregnant, and he realized that she was going to have a kid, he tries to get the woman's husband, to go and be with her so the husband would think and the wife would think that kid belonged to the husband and not him. And so when he tries to get the husband to get with the wife, the husband was like, no, my man is in battle. It's going to be unfair for me to leave the battlefield, come home and be with my wife and have a good time while my men are on the front line fighting. I can't do that. And so David got him drunk. And David, now this is a man after God's own heart. David got him drunk, and David tried to get him to go, and it just wasn't working, so the guy didn't go. So this is what David figured. Well, if you won't go, i got to set him up to die so this all can play out a different way. So David called another one of his generals and gave him a letter, and the letter stated, Let Uriah go to the front of the battle where it's most dangerous and and when the next war start, let him start it up. Let him be in the front and just leave it at that. Well, David knew what he was doing. If Uriah started the war and he was in the front, he was going to be in the most dangerous place. He would die. Story turns out, the husband, Uriah, died. So now the woman which David um, was with, Uriah's wife, the pregnancy went through and she had the baby eventually. Well, David, man after God's own heart, he lied. He got with a woman that wasn't his woman, was somebody else's wife. When he tries to manipulate to try to get out of it, it didn't work. So he sent the man to die. So he really caused that man to die. So he really committed murder. A man after God's own heart. Still today an icon. Why am I telling you this? Why did David get caught that day watching Bathsheba? When I went to Israel, I was able to see it. Most of the houses in Israel, they're high, and all of them have what you would call a veranda connected to the bedroom or connected to the living room. So you can always see if there's a house. I went into the city of David in Israel, and if there's a house higher than another, which I'm sure the palace was, you can go on your porch and look down on everybody else's porch, and he saw the woman, and he saw her, and he was attracted to her. But here is what happened. The problem was David had never missed a battle before that time. 
Every battle that Israel faced, David was a big part of that battle, making sure he's fighting against those men. And they would always win. God will always give them the victory. That day when David got in trouble, he never went to battle. He stayed home. He missed up or messed up his routine. He messed up his routine. If you have a godly routine, if you have a right routine working in your life, you might not think much about it, but it is what that will create character. It is what will create longevity. It is what that will create for you blessings from God if you obey and follow that routine that you will not deviate from. And I've got plenty of um, um, other things. I will tell you this. The church that, um, that, that I was attending before I started this church, for years we had what we call a prayer room in our building. And we would go to the prayer room starting 4 o'clock in the morning all the way up to evening, 6 o'clock. The door would be open and people would just go in and pray anytime you want. You can just go and pray. That was our routine. When we moved the church from that building to Lambertville, that was no longer the routine. A lot of things changed. If we're going to survive in the kingdom of God, we must establish and cultivate apostolic routine and it will last you. But we can't just live our Christian life just bouncing or being pulled on a string to go someplace just life just pulling you you must take charge of life the godly way you have to take charge of life the right way don't let life take charge of you and so i want you to think about it do you have a routine a godly routine that you have established that no matter what, you will not deviate from this. This is my godly routine. This is what I do in staying connected with God, and I will not compromise this for anything or anyone. If you don't, got good news for you. Now you need to start thinking about it and allow the Lord to help you to establish that. I will give you some key points tonight on how you can establish and cultivate an apostolic routine. And I know you keep saying, why do you keep saying that word apostolic? I'm going to show you in the scripture. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, I'm going to go from verse 36 through 47. And I'm going to take it step by step and go through the scriptures and talk about them because I want you to understand the routine that the first church Established. I'll give you this, Jason, just for you. The other people can hear me while I'm telling you, but I'm telling you. So check this out. The book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talks about the life of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts talks about the beginning of the New Testament church. So if you ever want to know what church is supposed to be like, read the book of Acts. If you want to know how they did things from the beginning in church, read the book of Acts. There is no other place in the Bible to tell you how the church started and what the beginning of the church was like. Only the book of Acts can tell you that. 
So if you want to know what you should expect in a church, read the book of Acts from Acts chapter one all the way to the end and you will know. So that's why tonight we're going to go to the book of Acts to find out what routine did they establish and cultivate to, to, to last in the kingdom of God. We hear a lot of time people started out with God, but they didn't make it. Well, depending on did they establish and cultivate an apostolic routine, and if they did, did they stick to that routine? Now, here's the good news. If you established a routine and you cultivated it and you're living by it and something happens and you, well, you got out of the routine and something happened, guess what's the good news? Because you had established a routine, you know what to go back to. Right? It's like the foundation we talked about Sunday. So once you have established a routine, I'm not telling you to ever get off of it. But what I am telling you is, if you end up deviating from that routine, at least you can come to yourself and say, you know what? I stopped following my routine. I need to get back to my routine. But the point is, get one, cultivate it, and you will make it. So Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God had made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm going to help you to understand just a tad bit what was going on there. Peter was preaching to a whole lot of people, mainly Jews at that time. Peter was preaching to them. And he was telling them a lot of things about what God had in store for them. So Peter's preaching to them, and he's, he started preaching in verse 14, or probably even before that, verse, chapter 2, verse 14, all the way up to 47. So Peter's preaching, and he's telling the folks that crucified Jesus. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made. What he's saying is, God had become Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. God, who became Jesus, whom you have crucified, is both Lord and Christ. And so that's what Peter told them. So they realized, the Jews realized that they was responsible for crucifying the creator, almighty God, who became a man, and the man name is Jesus Christ, they realized he was the Messiah that they crucified. So Peter is telling them, in other words, that man that you crucified, that was the Messiah. That's the one who came that prophesied through his prophets that he would come. And he came to help you all to show you that he is the promised Messiah and what you all did, crucified him. He is the Lord. And he is the Messiah. Lord always means ruler. Messiah means anointed one. So Peter was telling them that, hey, you crucified almighty God who became a man. You crucified him and he is Lord and Christ. So that's what it's saying. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, 
men and brethren, what shall we do? Hmm. So when they realized they did something wrong, they started talking among themselves. You're telling me when we say crucify, when we said crucify him, crucify him, we was saying kill the Messiah, the almighty God. That's what we supported. Oh, no. What are we going to do? So they were pricked in their hearts. Once Peter explained that to them, they realized that wasn't good. They realized it wasn't good. And so now they're worried about what's going to happen to them. Can I tell you this? One of the things we must cultivate in our life as a routine is every time you know or it's brought to your attention that you have done something wrong, make it right with God. Don't hold on to your wrong for a long time. Here is what we're learning. This is the early church. And they're learning that whenever they have wronged God and they knew they wronged God, they didn't, they didn't procrastinate. They said, you know what? We wronged God and we want to make it right. So anytime we have sinned against God or wronged God, we need to say, what do I need to do to get it right? That's a, that, that's a routine. That's a way of life that we need to establish in our life that whenever we wrong God, we need to do whatever we must do to make it right. So that's what they were looking at here. How do we make it right? That's really basically what they're saying. How do we make it right? Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent. Anytime you have wronged God, the only way to fix your wrong is to repent. There is no other way to fix it. You, you can feel bad. You know how we say when we get caught, we feel bad and we, and we say we're sorry, we apologize. Repentance is not apology. Whenever we know we've wronged God, we can't just say, God, I'm sorry, or we just feel bad, or we cry, or we just just, just kind of hang back and like, oh, you know, man, you know, I know I did wrong. That's not how you fix your wrong when you wronged God. There is no other way to fix your wrong when you wrong God other than repent. Hmm. What is repentance? What is repentance? Here is why a lot of us are challenged with repenting. We usually don't repent because we don't realize that our wrong offended God. And so you first got to realize your wrong offended God, but you also got to feel some kind of way that you offended God. So if, if, if we don't realize who God is and what he means to us, that when we did wrong, then when we do wrong, that we really offend him, we can't really repent. You got to know that, you know what? I wronged God. When we sin, we don't sin against people. We sin against God. You follow me? When you sin, I'm going to help you tonight. I'm going to clear it up. When you sinned, you sinned against God, but you offend people. So you can sin against God, but you can 
offend people. All right? In order to fix your wrong against God, you have to repent. Only God can remove sin. People can't remove your sin. People can't forgive you of your sin. Only God can forgive your sin. Why? Because he was the one that died for your sin. So when you sin, you should feel some kind of sorrow. What the Bible call it? Godly sorrow that you offended God. Man, I did wrong against God. And this is how I always feel when I have to repent. God never did anything to me. He's always treated me good. He's always been fair to me. He's always loved me even when I didn't love him. Why would I do such a thing to offend my God? And that makes me repent. Repentance should not be done out of fear. Repentance should be done out of love. Come on, somebody help me tonight. That is that that is that is why sometimes we don't get it right because we think that when we did wrong when we do wrong God is going to strike me down and so I better get it right. You're not executing good. It's not that's not true repentance. True repentance. I mean, mess with Cheryl here. Jason might get some information that he never got before, but that's just the way we are, Jason. So. If Cheryl, I'll do it this way because I know this this is always the good, the best way to do it. So if Cheryl did wrong and upset Daryl, and she realized that she's done wrong to upset him, when she go to him, she's gonna go to him because of love, not because she's scared Daryl is gonna do something to her. She's going because she feels bad that the person she care about so deeply, she's gonna just do him wrong. And that's how we're supposed to go to God is I care so much. I love God so much that I'm just hurt that I hurt him. I'm disappointed in me that I disappointed God. That's supposed to drive us to repentance, not saying, ooh, I'm afraid of God, man. I better repent before he does something to me. That doesn't cut it. Repentance is godly sorrow working in your life. It means that you have sorrow because you sinned, you wronged your creator, the one that loves you more than anybody else. And so because of that, you go to him and say, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I sinned against you. I told that lie and I knew it was a bold-faced lie. And I know that you are not pleased because you hate all sin. Please, Father, in the name of Jesus, forgive me for lying. That's repentance. Now, if you're serious about it, you will guard against lying again. You will do your best to not lie. But if you did that, Make that whole repentance deal and you lie 10 minutes later, you really didn't repent. You know, it's like that guy that likes to beat on a woman, tell her that it's only because he loves her and he hit her and smack her a few times. And, and then he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. The next day he did it again. We're the same way when we when we when we repent and boom, that's what we're doing. So when we repent, it has to be a heartfelt sorrow for wronging God, the one that loves you. And so anytime we have sinned or done wrong, 
It's against God. Why is it against God and not people? Because God created the rules for living. God established what we're supposed to live like morally, and he established the rules how we're supposed to live, brother and sister, one to another. He established how we're supposed to live. So when we break the rules, we're breaking the rules that he established. So you wronged him, but you offend someone else. You repent to God, and you ask for forgiveness from people. You following me? So when I wrong God, so here we go. So I told you a lie and I walked away and realized I lied. I go in a, and talk to the Lord and repent to God for lying. Then when I get a chance to see you again, I need to say, you know, I'm very sorry, Daryl. You know, I said blah, blah, blah the other day, but I actually lied. And so forgive me, please. I ask for forgiveness from him because he can't forgive me of my sins. I'm asking for forgiveness for because I offended him. He didn't make up the rule that thou shalt not lie. God did. So I go to him to say, you know, please forgive me because I lied. But I go to God and repent. We clear on that? So in order to fix any wrong, we have to repent. Now, Peter was giving them the, the, the beginning of their knowledge that they've done wrong. And what Peter said was repent and be baptized. So what Peter was telling them, this is before, this is to try to get the church established. So the people that Peter was preaching to, they were not Christians yet. They were Jews, but they were not Christians. So in order for them to become Christians, they had to follow the teaching that Peter's given them. So Peter says, you need to repent for the wrong that you've done against God. Then you must be baptized. Okay? What is baptism? In the Old Testament, in order to enter into relationship, it's called a covenant, you had to be circumcised. You can only be in relationship. If you want to check me on that, go back to Genesis. I don't know if it's chapter 11 and somewhere around there. But, but, but go back to Genesis when God told Abraham, okay, that everything in his house needs to be circumcised. And if they're not circumcised, they can't receive the blessings. If they're circumcised, they will receive the blessing. So God even went as far as telling Abraham, even them that are servants in your house, they must be circumcised. If they're not circumcised, they will not receive the blessing. That's how you became, you, you went into a covenant relationship with God back in the Old Testament days, circumcision. So, ladies, you want to ask me about you because you couldn't be circumcised? I'm glad you asked. The only way women could be saved back then is by living in the house with a circumcised husband or a circumcised father. If we were living like that, I guarantee you our society wouldn't be the way it is today. Because the woman will realize, I'm not leaving my father's house because I'm saved under my father's house. And until the man that wants to marry me is saved, I'm not going anywhere. Our life and our, our way of living would be so much different if we obeyed God from what he intended for us to do from the beginning, which is to just be in relationship with him. So covenant relationship back in the Old Testament 
every man had to be circumcised to be in a right relationship with God. If you weren't circumcised, you were not in right relationship with God. When you get baptized, you enter into covenant. This is the new way of doing things. Baptism replaced circumcision. So now all of us are required to be baptized in order to be in covenant relationship with God. You can tell me all you want. I've got a relationship with God and you talk to God, but it may not be a covenant relationship with God, which means God is not required and bound to do anything for you. But when you get baptized in the name of Jesus, then he is in covenant with you and he is bound by that covenant to do what he has to do. I know it doesn't sound good like that to say God is bound by something, but a covenant is an agreement between God and his people. And his people are required to do some things and God is required to do some things. So if I'm in covenant with God, God is required to do some things for me. Somebody say amen. So he says, repent and be baptized. He didn't say some of you. He didn't say a few of you. He didn't say one of you. He says, everyone, all of you. How? In the name of Jesus Christ. I got to tell you this because I teach the word of God and I will continue to teach the word of God. If we have, we have heard the terminology that people have been baptized in Father, Son, Holy Ghost, meaning when they submerge you or emerge you, whichever way you want to say it, underwater, they've speak over you, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's not what the Bible said here. The Bible says we must be baptized in the name of Jesus. So when you are submerged underwater, it must be in the name of Jesus and not in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Nobody in Scripture, in Scripture, people in the world may have, but nobody in Bible has ever been baptized in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Nobody. If you find it for me, I'll give you $2,000. I would have to go do a lot to get you 2000 but I'll, you know, I would might have to go to 401k for that one, but, but I'll give you the $2,000. So no one has ever been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. No one. Every, I'm sorry, in the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, everyone that got baptized got baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to make sure we get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what God explained, Peter explained to them that they must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what happened when they get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? The Bible says, for the remission of sins. The remission of sins. So when you get baptized, the Bible says that God will remove all of your sins. Now, he's not only removing the sins that you commit, but he's removing the sins of that which was committed against you, people that offended you. So when you get baptized, you're supposed to forgive everybody that offended you or did you wrong, and you're supposed to repent for anybody that you have done wrong. So Peter's given sound instructions like no place else you've seen in Scripture. He's saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And here's... The end of it. And ye shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost is very important. Hey, Ive. The gift of the Holy Ghost is important. And here is the deal. Uh, the Bible tells us that tells us that we will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost if we are baptized. What am I talking about here? I don't want to lose you. Establishing and cultivating an apostolic routine. If you don't start out right, as we talked about Sunday, then your foundation is not right. And so we want to establish foundation how the church was established, and then I'll finish up by telling you what the routine is that you need to establish as apostolics to make sure you stay on track and, 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 and don't go off track. And so you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is the gift of the Holy Ghost, right? The gift of the Holy Ghost is the, the Spirit of God in you. The Holy Ghost being in you is the Spirit of God in you. I know that's hard to understand, but when you receive the Holy Ghost, God's Spirit is now inside of you. Now, I know some people says that once I, I, I ask Jesus to come into my life, you know, his spirit automatically come into my heart. That's not sound teaching in the Bible. The Bible says when you repent and you're baptized in the name of Jesus, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You will receive God's spirit inside of you. And so now God is in you and not working around you. You see, all throughout Scripture, God, the Spirit of God, strived with men. All throughout Scripture, the Spirit of God inspired man. All throughout Scripture, the Spirit of God did work around men. But God says, I stick closer than a brother, Jason. God is not, he's not interested in just being around you. He's not interested in just being next to you. But God is more interested in being closer to you than your brother and nothing could be closer to you than your brother except for if God is in you so you want God to be in you and not around you and the Bible will tell us that when we go through scripture and realize when God is in you and he's living in you, you want to make sure you know for sure that God is in you. And the way you will always know that God is in you is when you speak in another language, speak in other tongues. That, that is something that many people are challenged with. I know when I teach in Mercer County Correctional Facility, they always ask me, well, do you have to speak in tongues? And all I can tell you is the Bible says to know that you have God's spirit living in you, the evidence is by speaking another language. Now, if you're okay, and I say this and I say it cautiously, but I'm just being honest. If you're okay saying, I have God's spirit, even though I haven't spoken tongues, if you're okay with that, then God bless you. Because you only have one soul and you're not, you don't want to leave that soul on, I, I think I'm okay. I feel like I'm okay. Remember what I told you, feelings is not good. Feelings lead us wrong all the time. Always let me pick on the ladies for a little bit. I right, you got a boyfriend? You don't have a boyfriend? You sure? Did you have one before? No? You, you tell me the truth. All right. But I'll tell you this. Still tell you this. Even when you finally get a boyfriend, that's not going to be the boyfriend that 
you married. I used to tell me a lot of stuff. She told me one time she's going to marry a preacher. Remember you told me that? I'm not going to tell all your secrets, my bad. She's a big girl now. <laughs> she's like, stop embarrassing me. Come on. Right, but anyway, your first boyfriend or your first girlfriend usually is not the one that you married. But guess what? You felt like you was all ooey gooey. This is my person. I'm so happy with this. You felt like that. So my point is we can't rely on our feelings. So if you want to rely on your feelings to think that you have God's spirit in, in you, I don't think that's a good way to, 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 to live to say, well, I feel like I have God's spirit. No, 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 no. Make sure you go by what the Bible says, the evidence of speaking another tongue. I'm talking about establishing and cultivating an apostolic routine. Verse 39 says, for the promise is unto you. And to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the scripture here is teaching us, Jason, you didn't have a choice but to one day just just respond to God because your dad decided he's going to respond to God. And so when we do it, and if the Lord tarry, you get married, Jason, you have children, and you living for God, that's a promise. Whenever we obey God's word, God said that promise will go to our children, and it will go to people that are close to us, and even people that are far off. So God's promise for us is not just for us. That's why if you got a blessing and the blessing is only blessing you, it's not from God. If you feel like, oh, I'm so blessed and you're the only one benefiting from that great blessing, it is not from God. God is so good that when he blesses you, it's going to be able to bless others. That's why he says here, if, if you obey what Peter preached, you, get, you repent, you get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. God says he will remove your sins and he promised you he will give you his spirit. He says if you obey that, that promise will be given to your children as well and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So I'm getting close now to finishing up. So verse 40 says, And with many other words did he testify. Talking about Peter. Peter was preaching his heart out. And with many words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You got to save yourself. Now that's a controversy controversial statement because we're going to say we can't save ourselves. Well, you can't save you, but if you don't respond to God's word, you can never be saved. So you must do something in order to get saved. So you got to save yourself. You have to look and say, I need to get myself right. I need to do this. So what a lot of people do, and they miss out a lot of times is, well, if God wants to save me, he knows where I'm at since he's this omnipotent God. He's this sovereign God. He knows where I am. He can come and save me. So I don't have to do nothing. He can do it. Wrong. Wrong. Go back to what we said. Why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why did he put it there? To give us the power of choice. He wanted to make sure we will choose to obey or choose to do what we want. And so 
when it says save yourself from this untoward generation, what the Bible is telling us is you choose if you want to obey me and have everlasting life. And if you choose that, then there's some actions that will be required of you if you're going to choose to have everlasting life and you have everlasting life. So you must choose. You, God can't make you. God is not going to strong arm us to, to live for him, to obey his word. God is going to give you the choice to say, what are you going to do? Because none of us will be able to say, well, God, you made me. Only children, we should only make children, only children. And Jason, grown man, Brother Darrell, I mean, he got to listen because, you, you know, if, you, if you're taking care, you know, you know if, if he needs your money, he got to listen to you. But once the kids get 18, if, if they're not depending on us financially, they don't have to listen to us. And we can't make them. I know you too, Cheryl, you know. Gotta, when you're shelling out the money, they got to listen. I understand that. But what I'm saying is, if we're going to follow our God, we can't make anybody do anything. I've learned that real good. And so if I realize someone don't want to do something, I don't force them. It doesn't work. And if you force them and they decide they're going to do it, they have hardly do it or it won't last. And what I like to say is, if God can't get people to do stuff, who am I? Who am I? I don't know why we would think that as man or as a woman, we can make somebody do something when God can't make them do it. God will, he could if he wanted to strong arm them, but God will not make you do anything. You need to choose if you're going to do it. And so that's why we probably think sometimes, hey, I'm good because God is not strong arming you. But God wants you to make the choice of your own. He gave us the power of choice. He said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So if you're going to save yourself, it means you have to obey God's word if you want to be saved. You have to put some action into it. You have to do something if you want to be saved. Now, if all we do is come to church and we never obey the word of God and make the word of God make us do something, then we still are not saving ourselves. We got to save ourselves. God gave us that one. He says, it's up to you whether you're going to, whether you're going to respond to my urge, respond to my calling, respond to my offer, my extension of giving your life to me. It's up to you. I can't make you. So God says, will you save yourself from this untoward generation? Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly receive his word was baptized. When are we going to get to the place where when we hear the word of God preached to us that we just obey it and do it? God is not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie to us. So whatever his word says, it really is what it is. And I don't want to find out the hard way. Jason, check this out. I know Jason said, man, dad, why you bring me here? I have this man picking on me all the time. Check this out, Jason. I will rather learn from your mistake than learn from mine. See if y'all caught that. Oftentimes, young people like to say, I just got to learn on my own. Now, that's silly. 
If I watch you made a mess of yourself, why am I going to make a mess of myself to prove that's true, that we'll make a mess of ourselves if we do this? No. If I watch you making a mess, I'm like, mm, okay, I ain't doing that. I never forgot when crack came out. You weren't born in yet, Jason. Crack came out. And crack was the hottest thing. And some people smoked it and they was okay. You know, it still made them high and everything. And others smoked it. No, it wasn't crack. It was one called Love Boat. You don't know about that. Love Boat. Love Boat was, was, was <laughs> do snap laughing. She know about it. Love Boat was, was bad. When you smoke Love Boat, it makes you take your clothes off and run around naked. Now, some people, it just destroyed them, but other people, they still had a little control. Man, I remember some guy talking about, you want to try some? Man, anything. That's going to make me lose my mind. I'm not trying it. We want to think that we strong. I can try it. I'll be all right. Yeah, okay. Not taking the chance. And my point is, there's some things in life I am not going to learn from my own experience. I will watch others make the mistake and says that I'm not doing because I'm not getting to that situation. But somehow we want to think we're smarter. Somehow we want to think we're more intelligent so we're not going to, we can do it and it won't happen to us. Silly, silly, silly. So my deal is God is almighty. He can't lie, and whatever he says will come to pass. So if God tells you something, if the word of God tells you something, obey it. It will work for you. So when they heard all that good preaching, they gladly received the word of God. Anybody gladly want to receive the word of God? I gladly received the word of God. And so they gladly received the word of God and was baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What it's saying is when we obey the word of God, we get connected with God. But when we disobey the word of God, we are disconnected with God. How can I say that? The Bible says the church is the body of Christ. When these people got baptized in the name of Jesus and they received the Holy Ghost, the Bible says they were added. It means they became a part of something. So when you obey obey God's word, you become a part of his will. You become a part of what God is doing. But when you disobey God, you're disconnected and you're not heading in the direction where God is going. So we can believe all we want to think that we're okay when we're disobeying God, but we're not. We're disconnected and we're going in the wrong direction. It's only through obedience to God that we will go in the direction he wants us to go. So when we gladly receive the word and we obey the word, then what will happen is we will be added to God's purpose. We will be in God's purpose and will. So that was 41. 42 says, and they continued. Here is where we're going now to cultivate and establish or establish and cultivate that apostolic routine. Here we go now. 42 says, and they continued. So after they did the initial uh, obedience of the word of God, after initially they repented, they got baptized, they received God's spirit, they did that. That initially got them to be a part of God's kingdom. And so now they're a part. Now they must develop a routine that will keep them 
until it's time to go to heaven. So here is where we are right now. What is our routine that will keep us until we get to heaven? I need to make sure I have a routine. I need to formalize my routine. I told you at the beginning that doing this church, and it's new to me, I I have gone, I'm all over the place. I'm trying to get a routine going. I'm trying to know when I study. I'm trying to know when I do this and when I do that. And that routine is not easy to get under control, but I am seeking and I am going after making sure I establish a routine, godly routine. If you don't, you're going to get in trouble. So verse 42 says, and they continued steadfastly. It meant without wavering. They continued in the apostles doctrine. Ooh, the apostles' doctrine. That's what they did. Now, people will ask me, well, why do you always use that word, Wayne, apostolic? Now you got it. Because it was the apostles that taught, and when they taught in the scriptures there, people obeyed, and that's how they got added to the church. That's how they got in the church, by obeying the teaching of the apostles. So I can call myself an apostolic, and what would that mean? I obey the teaching. I follow the teaching of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says. And are built upon the foundation. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the chief of what the apostles and the prophets did. So it's, it's like anything else in leadership, authority. Jesus taught the apostles and the prophets and they taught us. Jesus taught the apostles and the prophets and they taught us. So when you hear the scripture says the apostles doctrine or you hear someone says I follow the teaching of the apostles doctrine, it means I'm following what Jesus taught the apostles, that's what I'm following. But because the apostles taught it, it's called the apostles doctrine. But it was Jesus that handed down the teaching. He is the chief. He is the one that supported it. So at the end of the day, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And what else did they do? And they fellowship. What else did they do? They ate together. What else did they do? And they prayed. Here is what you want to establish as routine. Every day. Every day. Every day. If you can, before you do anything, read your Bible. Pray to God. Have fellowship with another Christian. And if you can, break bread with another Christian. Apostolic routine. Every day. Every day. When you wake up, read your Bible. Pray. It doesn't matter which way you do it. Either way is fine. Pray. Fellowship with other Christians. Break bread. It is, a, it is very important that we establish that routine every day of our life. It will keep you. 
talking to another Christian that is a real Christian, not somebody that's just your friend and buddy buddy that won't tell you the truth. I'm I'm closing here with this. All the new pastors in the New Jersey metro area, including myself, we have this great thing going. I am just elated about how great it is. And what we do is we get together, we pray together, we talk about strategic things that we need to do to help our churches do better, to help New Jersey Metro plant more churches, and just anything that we need to talk about. And we got together last night and we talked and we prayed. And one of the things that they said is, I'm so thankful to God that we have a safe environment where we can just share anything. Because all of us, pastors, leaders, deacons, ministers, laity, whoever you are, you need a Christian person that will be a Christian with you at all times even in them loving you and whatever they do, but you need a Christian person that you can talk with, fellowship. It is very important. If there's nobody in your life that you can talk to and fellowship with, it can come back to get you. So as a Christian, you want to establish and cultivate an apostolic routine every day. Prayer. Read your Bible. Talk to and fellowship with another Christian person. And if you can, eat with someone. That someone may be your family. But those four things is routines that you want to establish. You can't get out of it. You, you got to keep on doing it. Now, I'm going to tell you the, the fifth thing is, is, is that you want to always try your best to engage in letting somebody know about Jesus. That's the fifth thing. If you start that routine and you keep doing it, it will help you. And the moment you start deviating from it, you're going to see things changing in your life. You want to look for a problem in your life? Look and see if you had established an apostolic routine and say you're following it. And if you're not following it, you will be able to trace back. Here's where I made my mistake. Every sin problem is because we fail to pray. Anytime you wronged God, somewhere along the line, you failed to pray before you did what you did. If we pray before we make any moves and seriously pray, it will help us from making the wrong move. But remember what I started off telling you? We allow life to lead us and we follow life instead of us doing what we're supposed to do through God in life and not let life control us. So if we will take control of life and not let life control us and we will obey God, we will see a whole lot of difference in our life. And this will be the thing that keeps us. If we do not establish and cultivate an apostolic routine, we will not endure till the end. Establish. I gave you all the bread Bible because I want you to establish and cultivate. You have something to read every day because a lot of times we, we said, ah, you know, I don't know what to read. I read this. And now you got to read it every day. Read it every day. It will help you. Anyone have any questions about what we just talked about? Verse 46 says, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and break in bread from house to house. Did they eat 
their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as such as should be saved. Let me tell you, if we want to see signs and wonders and see God do great things, we follow those five things. Prayer. Look at look at Miss Thomas looking at me. What five things? I'll tell you what five things again. Prayer, reading your Bible. If you can, eat with a fellow Christian and fellowship with a fellow Christian. And the fifth thing is, let your light shine. Be a witness for Christ in any way you can. That's the routine. Five things. That's the routine. Five things, I've. If we're going to endure till the end and make it every day, we can't miss out. We can't miss out. We can't miss out. Listen, the Jews and the Muslims pray how many times a day? Three times a day. They don't know who the Messiah is, but they pray three times a day. We should pray every day. We can't miss it. We can't miss it three times a day. If we do that, it keeps us on the routine. And remember, I didn't, I'm not telling you that this routine will make you sinless or will prevent you from making mistakes. That's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is it will keep you to the end because when you get off track, you will be easy to look and say, I got off track right there. I didn't pray this morning. I didn't read my Bible today. I didn't call up my brother or my sister, my Christian person, and fellowship with them. I didn't spend time with my family eating. I didn't let my light shine today. I, didn't, I, I wasn't a good witness for God today. Those are the five things that will help you. It's a routine that you want to establish and cultivate. Remember what I told you. King David messed up just from one time getting off his routine not going to battle. He didn't go to battle, and he saw Bathsheba. That was all she wrote. If we will get a routine, we will cultivate that routine, we will see through to the end till God return, or we die and leave here. Any questions? Amen. You're quiet on me.